being made fun of is no fun at all. How many of you, when you were a kid, were made fun of? Lots of hands going up. I, I, when I was a kid, I, I got made fun of. Uh, I think of this one incident especially. I, I was in the Gifted and Talented program in Crown Point. Um, I know, hard to imagine, right? Gifted, talented, uh, neither. Um, but uh, I used to be. Um, so when I was part of the Gifted and Talented program, uh, I was invited to a summer science program at Crown Point High School. And I was probably in like third or fourth grade. I was just a little guy. And so I started going to this summer science program. And the kids in my class, who are all older than me, found out my last name. It's Cornette. And there used to be a jingle for paper products. And they would sing this jingle to me. You know the jingle. Extra value is what you get when you buy Coronet. Yes. Only they didn't sing that. They sang, extra value is what you get when you are Sean Cornette. Now, that's not so bad. But when you're in third grade, that's devastating. And I would cry. I mean, tears. And, and I, would, I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to go back to the, to the class anymore. And my mom had a talk with the teacher, and we worked things out. But it was devastating. Being made fun of is no fun at all. It hurts. And I think we all feel that way from time to time. We all feel like people are making fun of us, and, or they make fun of us behind our backs, they make fun of us to our faces. And it's devastating. It hurts. and Because what they do is they, they pick out some feature about us, right? They pick out some feature. And they'll, and they'll tease you about it. They'll make fun of you about it. Maybe you're, you know, your nose is a little big or your ears are a little big. Or, you know, you, you're too skinny or too heavy. Or, and, and kids are cruel, right? I mean, kids are cruel. You, you know, your hair is a little different or it's messy or it's too long or it's too short. Or you're too tall or you're too short. Or you're too poor, you come from the wrong side of the tracks. Or, or you're too wealthy. Uh, nobody makes fun of those folks, do they? But whatever it is, they pick it out and they just won't stop. And they just rip on you and, and tease you and pick on you and make fun of you. And it hurts. Because being made fun of, no fun at all. You know, this whole idea of being made fun of, we tend to think of little kids bullying each other, making fun of each other. We do it as adults too, don't we? Oh, we'll just, I'm just teasing. I'm just kidding, just joking. JK, ah, LOL. Little sarcastic comments. You know, there's a little bit of truth behind every bit of sarcasm. <laughs> and it hurts. Whether you're nine years old, 29 years old, 49 years old, 79 years old, when someone makes fun of you, when somebody mocks you, it hurts. Because being made fun of is no fun at all. Today we're going to talk about Mark chapter 15. And in Mark 15, Jesus is made fun of and worse. In Mark chapter 15, we read about the death of Jesus Christ. 
And so we've been talking about the book of Mark since the beginning of January. It's been a long journey, hasn't it, folks? If you've been here uh, for the last uh, three months, three and a half months, you've been on this journey with us. If you've never been here before, uh, we've been studying the book of Mark. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the, the book of Mark is a gospel. And, and a gospel is simply a biography of Jesus. And Mark is a man who wrote a biography of Jesus. And he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter would tell stories, uh, the story of Jesus. And when he would preach, and he would talk about the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus did. And Mark wrote down all of these stories, and he compiled them into this biography known as the Gospel or the Book of Mark. And so we've been taking it a chapter a week since the beginning of the year. And it's been intense. It has been an intense series. And I have, I personally, I don't know about y'all, but I have gotten a ton out of this series. I have learned so much. Uh, about stuff I thought I already knew, uh, stuff I had read before, but it's, it's all fresh. And that's what reading the Bible will do. And I encourage you to read your Bible because you may have read it before and you thought, no, nah, I've read that before. Read it again because you will get something new out of it. It is amazing how God's Word uh, will continue to change your life. The Word doesn't change, but the way it applies to your life certainly does. Just read it. Um, but today, we're, like I said, we're in Mark chapter 15. If you brought a Bible, turn to Mark 15. If you didn't bring one, you can grab one out of the chair in front of you. It looks like this. It's on page 828 of this Bible, Mark 15. Uh, or you can use your GFCC app. If you've already downloaded the app, great. If you haven't downloaded it yet, go to your Play Store or your iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, the iTunes Store. Search for GFCC, and you can download the app there, and you can take sermon notes uh, in the app, you can follow along with the scriptures, you can give online, as well as get notifications about upcoming events uh, and reminders about things going on here at GFCC. It's a very useful and versatile app, and so we encourage you to download the app. Many of you have, and we really appreciate that. Um, so we're in Mark 15. At the end of Mark 14, Jesus is on trial before the high priest and the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders of Israel. He's on trial before the San and the Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Israel. And the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Son of God, the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And with those two words, Jesus was claiming to be God. Because that was the personal name of God. I am. And so Jesus claiming to be God, and he had the right to do that because Jesus is God. And he uh, proved that over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. So Jesus uh, claims to be God, and the high priest rips his clothing. He tears his clothes as a sign of great grief. And he accuses Jesus of blasphemy. The punishment for blasphemy is death. But here's the problem. And, and all the chief priests agreed, Jesus should be put to death. The problem is, is the, while they had all the religious power, they didn't have any political power. They did not have the power to put Jesus to death, even though they all agreed that Jesus should die. So they had to go to the Roman governor. His name was Pilate. And they had to convince Pilate that Jesus was worthy of death. Look at verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. 
Now, again, they have bound Jesus. They have tied him with leather straps, and they have brought him to Pilate. Pilate asks, asks Jesus a question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. Jesus is not denying the charge, but not necessarily agreeing with Pilate. He's letting Pilate make the decision himself. He's putting the ball in Pilate's court. He asks him again. Jesus stands silent. He silently stands there, not saying a word. And Pilate is getting frustrated, and he says, do you hear what they're saying about you? Do you hear the charges they're making against you? Don't you have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus just stands there silent. And the, the Mark says that Pilate was amazed at Jesus's lack of defense of himself. Verse, uh, chapter 15, uh, verses 6 and 7. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The religious zealots, the Jewish zealots, would often try to overthrow the Roman government. The, the Romans were uh, occupying the land that God had given to the Jews. And the Jews did not take too kindly to this, and they still don't. This was the promised land. This is the land that God gave us, and the Romans are occupying it, and they don't belong here. These Gentiles don't belong in our land. We need to kick them out. And so lots of times there would be uprisings and revolts. Insurrectionists would try and overthrow the government. Pilate's normal uh, mode of operation uh, was to rule from the city of Caesarea. But during the Jewish feasts, he would go and stay in Jerusalem. Because that's when religious fervor was at its highest, and the people would try to overthrow the government. They'd get whipped into a frenzy, and it's like, all right, let's overthrow it, and let's get these guys out of here. And so there's a man named Barabbas who was imprisoned because he had done this. He had tried to overthrow the government. He had revolted, and he committed murder during one of these uprisings. So Pilate is going to uh, mercifully release a prisoner. There is Barabbas, who is a threat to the empire, and a known murderer and a violent man. You have Barabbas, and then you have Jesus, bound in leather straps, whom the uh, chief priests, teachers of the law, the elders, are calling the king of the Jews. Now, what's the big deal about that? In Roman society, there was only one king, and his name was Caesar. Anybody else who called themselves king was a threat to the throne. And the Romans had a real effective way of deterring threats to the throne. It was called crucifixion. Crucifixion didn't just happen on the day that Jesus died. It happened all the time. And it was a very public, painful way to kill somebody. It was a deterrent against uprisings. You see, folks, this is what they do to insurrectionists. This is what they do to zealots who try to revolt and overthrow the government. Take note. Nobody wanted to be crucified. But Jesus volunteered. So they take 
Jesus to Pilate. Pilate finds no fault in him, but he's, his hands are tied. If he doesn't do what the Jews want, they're going to they're gonna revolt. But he doesn't want to crucify Jesus because he knows he's innocent. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So the chief priest hand Jesus over to him, and he doesn't want to deal with this, and so he hands it over to the crowd. He puts the ball in their court. And they start crying out for Barabbas to be released to them. And in verse 14, we read that, uh, we see that before 14, uh, that he said, what should I do with Jesus, the king of the Jews? And they said, crucify him, crucify him. Look at verse 14. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. The, the chief priests and the teachers of the law had stirred up the crowds and they had uh, riled up the crowds to call out for Jesus to be crucified, even though he hadn't done anything wrong. And Pilate even knew that he hadn't, he hadn't done anything wrong. It says that Pilate had Jesus flogged. He handed him over to the guards to be flogged. <laughs> Flogging was almost as painful as crucifixion. They would say, have you all seen a cat of nine tails? There's a handle and some leather straps coming off of that. They would take bits of lead and jagged metal and sharp spikes and, and broken bits of bone and they would embed them into those straps so that when they would whip somebody with it and they would pull it back, it would tear the, the skin off of their back. They would tie someone to a post they would, or they would just throw them on the ground and they would just start whipping them and ripping and just tearing their skin to shreds. The, the historian Josephus said that it was very common for their bones to be laid bare. That you would see a person's bones sticking out during flogging. And it was very, very common for people not to survive flogging that they would actually die during the flogging. They would be beaten within an inch of their life or they would be killed by flogging. They did this to Jesus. Well, it says that they took him and, and the whole company of soldiers took him to the praetorium. That was the home of the Roman governor. And they're out in the courtyard. A company of soldiers was 600 soldiers. So 600 soldiers take Jesus into this courtyard of the governor's house. Look at verses 17 through 19. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. So in those days, the king or, the, or Caesar would wear a laurel wreath as a crown. He, not a gold crown, but a, a laurel wreath as a sign of power and, and honor. And here they take and twist thorns together to make a, a makeshift wreath of thorns, not a, a crown of honor, but a crown of thorns. And they take it, it says that they set it on him. They didn't just set it on his head. They pressed it into his skull, further humiliating him. They put a purple robe on him. Purple was the color of royalty. And they put that crown of thorns on him. They did this to Jesus. Verse 18. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage 
to him. They made fun of him. They struck him with a staff in the head. They spit on him. They mocked him. They, they paid false homage to him by bowing down before him. Hail, King of the Jews. Here's the thing about this story that, that really gets me. They had no idea. They had no idea that the one they were mocking, that the one they were spitting on, that the one they were striking, that the one whose head they pierced, the one who they were about to crucify, could have, with a single word, destroyed them all. With a single word, could have called down thousands upon thousands of angels to defend him and wipe them all off the face of the earth. That the one whom they were making fun of is the one who created them. And yet Jesus stayed silent. They did this to Jesus. We keep reading in the story. Look at verses 23 and 24. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. You know what's amazing about that? Do you remember when Jesus was born and the Magi brought him three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and... At the very beginning of his life, they bring him myrrh as a gift of honor. And here at the end of his life, they try to feed him myrrh. That's so interesting to me, this juxtaposition of birth and death. Verse 24. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. They crucified him. They drove long spikes into his wrists and into his feet. They nailed him to the cross. They did this to Jesus. Before they get to the cross, a man from a city called Cyrene, his name was Simon, was forced to carry the beam of Jesus' cross. Cyrene was a, a city in northern Africa. It was the capital city of a, a country in northern Africa uh, that was near uh, what we know today as Libya. And this man was the, says he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and it's quite possible that Alexander and Rufus, and maybe even Simon, became followers of Jesus, and that's why they're mentioned by name, that the people in the first century church would have gone, oh, Alexander and Rufus, we know them. They're mentioned here in the gospel. And Simon carried the cross beam of Jesus to the place of crucifixion, where they nailed Jesus to it and fastened him to the cross. They did this to Jesus. And so Jesus is hanging there in the middle of the day, dying on the cross. And you know what's amazing? He's been beaten within an inch of his life in the flogging. He has been mocked, made fun of, and spit upon, and struck, and hit. And he's been nailed to this cross. And yet he still knows his scriptures. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. Look at verses 16 and 17 of this psalm. David wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. 
people stare and gloat over me. Sound familiar? Look at verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is on the scene. And David wrote these words. Look at Mark 13, uh, 15, 34. I'm sorry, Mark 29 through 31. I'm getting ahead of myself. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. In Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, David wrote these words. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's amazing. Mark 15, 34. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what the first verse of Psalm 22 says? It says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Jesus had the uh, the, the presence of mind to see himself and to remember Psalm 22. These words, he was, he was quoting scripture, not just crying out to God, he was quoting scripture. Mark 19, 15, 36, look at this. Jesus had said in John's gospel, I thirst, and it says, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen says this. My mouth is dried up like a pot's hurt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. That Jesus says, I thirst. Psalm 22 says, he's thirsty. It's amazing how Jesus had the presence of mind to see himself in Psalm 22 it says they they crucified Jesus and he and he died he breathed his last in verse 37 and then verse 38 says that the, the temple curtain was torn uh, from top to bottom and that may not sound like much it, it may be sound like it easier to tear like a curtain like these on the window but this was no ordinary curtain this was a large curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt and this curtain was no ordinary curtain. It was a thick curtain. And not only that, it was 30 feet wide by 30 feet tall. It was a 30-foot curtain. Unless a 30-foot man, unless Godzilla walked in there and tore this curtain from top to bottom, it was a miraculous tearing of this curtain by God that when Jesus died, he made the way possible for us to have a direct relationship with God. That you don't have to go through a priest or through a pastor. You don't have to go through anyone in order to have direct access to God because Jesus tore the curtain and he tore the veil and he made it possible to have a relationship with God through him. By his grace, through faith in his son, 
He made it possible. Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The pagan Roman centurion recognized Jesus as the son of God and his own people couldn't do it. His own people couldn't recognize Jesus as the son of God. And yet this pagan Roman centurion recognized it like that. Verses 40 and 41. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. I have a question. Where were the men? The women faithfully stayed by Jesus' side. The women faithfully followed him to the cross. And yet the men, the only man who was there was the apostle John. And we read that in John's gospel. But all the other men, all the other disciples fled. And they ran scared. Where are the men? The women were faithful. The men were chickens. I find that fascinating. The women stayed with him till the end. And then they took him and buried him after he died. A man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man. He was a rich man. And he had a tomb. And he came and he asked Pilate for the body. Now, here, the, the, the thing you got to know about Joseph is that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the ruling council who had condemned Jesus to death. And the other Gospels tell us that he secretly became a follower of Jesus. And so he comes and he asks, and even though it may have cost him so much, he came and he asked Pilate for the body, and then he buried it in his tomb. And Pilate ordered that a large stone be rolled in front of the tomb because Pilate had heard that uh, the disciples were going to come and steal the body in the night. And Pilate put the, the Roman seal over the tomb. And that seal could only be broken by the Romans. And if anybody else broke it, it was punishable by death. No one was going to move that stone. And Jesus was buried and dead. They did all of this to Jesus on a Friday. On a Friday. And sometimes in our lives, it feels and it may be in your life, you feel like you're stuck on Friday. Sometimes it may feel like you're stuck on Friday. Your life feels like it's falling apart and you're stuck on Friday. Your relationships, your relationship with your spouse, your significant other is falling apart and you're stuck on Friday. Your relationship with your kids is strained and you're stuck on Friday. Your, relation, your grandkids don't want anything to do with you and you're stuck on Friday. Your parents are all over your case and, and you're being abused and you're stuck on Friday. You, your uh, friends are, have abandoned you and you're stuck on Friday. You, the, your coworkers uh, pick on you or they make fun of you or they persecute you and you're stuck on Friday. Your health has taken a turn for the worse and you're feeling worse and worse all the time and you're stuck on Friday. You've been given a diagnosis 
that is scary and terrifying and you don't know what to do and you're stuck on Friday. Your job, uh, you may be losing your job and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet and you're stuck on Friday. You're getting ready to retire. You got nothing in the bank and you're scared and you're stuck on Friday. But I'm here to tell you something. I'm here to tell you something so very important that when it feels like life is beating you up, when it feels like you're stuck on Friday, when it feels so painful and it hurts so bad and you're stuck on Friday, when it feels like God is a million miles away and we're stuck on Friday, there's something you got to remember. There's something you got to remember that when it feels like everything is falling apart, there's something you got to remember. When it feels like life is, is turning against you, when your friends are turning against you, when your family is turning against you, there's something you got to remember that it may feel like it is only Friday. But I'm here to tell you this one thing. 